The Weigel Cast is part of the Hashtag Pressing Program, presented by GE. Welcome to Slate's interview podcast, The Weigel Cast. I'm Slate's political reporter, Dave Weigel, and my guest this week is D.C. Councilman Marion Berry. Yes, to the surprise of people who don't live in the city, Berry is still in politics, still getting elected. It's been 40 years since his first election to the council, 24 years since his arrest in a crack cocaine sting, and a generation since he left jail to win a final term as mayor. He's written a memoir, Mayor for Life, a cheeky use of the nickname Washington reporters gave to him in the 1990s. We sat down recently at D.C.'s Carolina Kitchen to talk about it. In the book, you write about years of leaking stories about you and trying to get negative stories in the press. But you write, you were surprised at how fast T-shirts appeared on the street saying, bitch, hit me up. That's one thing that's your, that you're famous for and you're trying to correct that. How do you compartmentalize and, and deal with it? It's hard. Very hard. I have my flaws. I have my bad times. But the good news is that every time this has happened, I've taken full responsibility for it. I don't try to duck it. I don't try to dodge it. I don't try to bullshit about it. And the truth, as Dr. King said, truth crushed it around to rise again. And that's what my life has been about. You've reacted negatively to uh, Dream City, the Tom Sherwood Harry Jeffy book, that being adapted. And you've, explain your, your, why you're reacting negatively to that. Well, first of all, I've been exploited by a number of white reporters. Mm-hmm. Well, Dream City is just a collection of newspaper articles and etc. I refused the interview with him because I told him and Harry Jaffe, I'll interview with you if you give some of the profits to my favorite charity. I'm not going to interview with you that you keep that money in your pocket like that. And so when they decided to sell that movie rights, I jumped right on it. Two white men exploiting a black man. Some reporter asked me, why do you say white men and black men? I said, they're white, aren't they? That's a fact. Two white men trying to exploit a black man. I'm black. And so I'm going to stay on that case. And I don't like being exploited. I don't like how people being exploited. In 1978, you won 47% of the white vote. And then decades later, that you, there's this backlash from uh, not just, I think, reporters. There's this way that race is covered in the media where if you, if you, talk, if you mention it exists... There's a, there's a backlash of even talking about that the status quo might be biased against some people. But how did that change from getting 47% of the white, the white vote to having this backlash all the time? It changed programmatically. Yeah. But in America, uh, racism still exists. Because of how much work we put on it, we made a lot of progress. It still exists. We're socialized that way. And so, uh, on the other hand, a lot of white people I know applaud me for trying to help the last, the least, and lost, trying to give opportunity to people who have not had opportunity before, and making our city a richer city, a more diverse city, and a city of uh, not have, have nuts, but a city of everybody having something. That's why. 
<laughs> Talk about your gay, your gay marriage position, because in 2008 you say you, you would be open to the idea of voting for gay marriage recognition. In 2009 you opposed it, and then recent last year you're saying you, you wouldn't mind presiding over some, some gay weddings. So did your thinking evolve on that, or what, what, was, what was behind the, the vote against it, the activism in 2009? Well, first of all, gay marriage is not the only litmus test. Right. You have to look at marrying marriage record. I started the first movement to hire a gay person in my administration, Richard Mosby, was in my cabinet. I just went to an affair last week we celebrating the situation. I was one of the original pushers of gay pride. I had gay people and lesbian people in my administration. Uh, and so my record was clear. What I decided to do was to dissent. I dissented because my constituents, a whole bunch of them, were opposed to it. I supported domestic violence over there, uh, domestic uh, partnership over their objections. I supported a whole bunch of gay rights over their objections. And this is one that they feel very strongly about. The black preachers, my black constituents, unlike other council members, where you had more of a variety of people supporting it, I decided not to. That didn't change my personal view. My personal view is very simple. What happens in your bedroom is up to you. And if you want to use gay marriage as a affectionate kind of thing of doing, do it. But in the terms of that wrong, I decided to dissent. I've always been a strong supporter of gay and lesbian rights, of LGBT rights. And so the gay community, the lesbian community, LGBT community, understood it, they didn't like it. But that's democracy. So, some of the coverage of that at the time, it always would come up, uh, the criticism of, of, of you for weighing in on a, on a moral issue, and you'd made a mistake once that you've owned up to. And just one last question about that I had is, what do you think of the way the mayor of Toronto is treated in the media, compared to the way you were treated? He's treated more, I think, as a kind of clownish figure, as he, opposed to some... He's not connected to me. Yeah. He doesn't have my historical record of, of achievement in America. Uh, there's no comparison. My record is so far better, etc. Uh, I think that I understand what's happening to him in terms of drug and alcohol. But he's making a fool of himself. Making a fool of himself. And using something that he's making a fool of himself. He shouldn't use the fact that he's abusing drugs as an excuse for being a fool. And uh, I sympathize with him. I know what he's going through, but I don't agree with what he's doing. We'll get back to my interview with Marianne Barry in a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. The Weichelcast is part of the Hashtag Pressing program presented by GE. Hashtag Pressing is working with some of the country's best news organizations to bring you thoughtful discussions of policy, not heated arguments about politics. I'd like to thank GE for making the program possible. And now back to my talk with Marion Berry. The book has so many examples of of just virulent racism from people when, when you're when you're working jobs in Mississippi to police yelling things at you from the street that that sort of behavior. 
how much racism is there still existing existed now? What is how is racism manifest now? How much is how much is left? You can't measure racism. You can measure some of the effects of it, yeah. uh, but people talk about this multiracial society. Uh, President's multiracial. That, that, yeah, that covers all the problems. The racism in this country in America is deep, very deep. And in fact, if you look at a civil rights movement, look at everything that black people have achieved in this country, they had to take it. They had to take it. Nobody has given us anything of, of, of merit. Voters right that had to take it. Uh, public accommodation, they go to jail, sit at lunch counters. You know, even the uh, Civil Rights Act, the Voters Rights Act, but to fight for it, continue to fight for it. The Supreme Court ruled that one part of it was unconstitutional. Got to fight for it. And I'm known as a fighter. I will fight hard for that which I believe in and that which is good for the people. And that's the reality. But don't blame me for I'm not talking about you, but the society. Shouldn't blame me for the racism. I didn't create it. I didn't bring it into being. We brought it into being because of the racist nature of the society. There are people like the Washington Post don't like to really point that out. You know, use the race. The race is real. I would encourage them to get where I am and look at it from my perspective. It's real. You read in the book about about the crack wars in search of that. Why is it possible now to decriminalize small amounts of marijuana without risking a, a relapse or more crime or encouraging the use the use of, the, of that drug? First of all, the crack wars cut took all of us mayors, all of us governors by surprise. We didn't have any answer. The scourge moved so fast that we couldn't do hardly anything. I tried, my chief tried, locking everybody up. That didn't work. We tried treatment. That didn't work. Because it's an economic crime. These young people who are selling drugs out here are doing it to make money. Some of it legitimately uh, to go over the things they need. Much of it going to themselves. And I understand it. I don't agree with it. And But the climate has changed in this country. Greatly. Colorado has legalized marijuana. See, when white people start changing things, it changes. And black people try to change it, it doesn't change. It's simple as that. And so we're now decriminalizing. Tommy Wells and I worked on decriminalization and through the council. And so we're locking up hundreds and thousands of black boys in Washington for one or two bags of marijuana. A whole record is stained for the rest of their life. They can't get a job. And that's just wrong to do. And so we made a correction in it. I'm proud of the fact that the majority of the council members agree with us on it. And uh, that's, that's great. That's it for this week's Wigglecast. Thanks to our producer, Alexis Diao, to Slate's senior producer, Mike Volo, and to the executive producer of Slate's podcast, Andy Bowers. If you like what you hear, please write a review on iTunes, and please check out the ever-growing universe of Slate podcasts. I'm Dave Weigel, and I'll see you next week.